I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Amen. Have a seat. Come on up, Tim. Did you need... Well, I'm sorry you got the wrong David Barton tonight. Um, I'm hope, I hope I'm not the sacrificial lamb um, for your frustration. But I do want to share tonight with us a lot of the concepts that are, are significant for our nation. I'll wait for my slides to get going. Maybe. I'm really going to be in trouble. That's, that's not mine. That's mine. <clears throat> we made it. We are so blessed as Americans to live in the nation we live. Uh, when you look at what we've accomplished, what we've done as a nation, what our founding fathers did when they put together the documents of our freedom, the Declaration, the Constitution, since we had the American Revolution and, and we wrote our own Constitution, we have set a new world record every single year for the nation living the longest under a single piece of paper. Now, that's quite remarkable when you consider stability and, and the way the world's going today, that we still live under our original framework, our original document, where we started our nation we are the most successful nation in the history of the world, which is pretty amazing. In fact, when you compare the history of the world, if you look at the United Nations, this last year there were 192 member nations that were present at the United Nations. Of those 192 member nations, we're one of the only nations of the world, uh, of those present, 192, that doesn't average a revolution every 30 to 40 years. Most nations in the world are going through what Egypt and Libya and Syria are going through. As Americans, we have stability. Now, I mentioned... That, that we still live in our original framework, our original constitution. What's interesting is when you look at the rest of the world, uh, places like France, when we went through our American Revolution, France went through a French Revolution very shortly after our revolution. We had a, a, a constitution that we established. France had a constitution. Do you know since that time, we both had our constitution about the same time, France has had 15 different forms of government since their first constitution after the revolution. We're still in our first. You can move over to Poland. Poland, since 1921, has had seven different forms of government. If you move up from Poland, you go to Russia. Since 1917, Russia has had four different forms of government. We're still in our first. We are so successful as a nation, and not only are we successful in our documents, you can even look at the idea of prosperity. Because as Americans, we make up only 4% of the world's population, but we account for 31% of the world's wealth. Now, that's remarkable to consider how blessed we are as a nation that we have only 4% of the world's population you would think we should have 4% of the wealth, but we have 31% of the wealth. We are so blessed as Americans. In fact, the U.S. Census Bureau releases findings every year, and according to the latest findings from the U.S. Census Bureau, if you live below the poverty line in America, you are still more likely to have a telephone, you're more likely to have a television, you're more likely to have an air conditioner, to drive your own car, to eat more red meat, and have more living space. And remember, this is if you're below the poverty line. You're more likely to have all of those things than if you lived in the middle class in Europe. Now, that's remarkable because Europe, that, that's, that's the second wealthiest place in the world. The poorest people in America are better off than the middle class of Europe. We have forgotten how blessed we are. And this is where, when you look through our history, you hear the term American exceptionalism. We are really an exceptional nation, and that term is not a term of pride. It's not because we think we're better than somebody else. It's because we recognize we are different than everybody else. What we have accomplished as Americans, we are so successful, we're different than anywhere else in the world. And really, when you look at the differences, 
One of the things that's interesting is when you look back, these are the guys, the founding fathers gave us our first government. And if you want to know what made it successful, we should look back and see what they did to establish the government they established. And if you want to know what they did to establish the government, you really have to, to get a perspective of their thinking. And so if you look back and, and see what it was they thought, how they thought, you kind of get the atmosphere of their thinking. It's really interesting what you find. You can go back to places like Independence Hall. Independence Hall is really considered the birthplace for the Declaration, the Constitution, really the framework of where we came from. Oh, a great example, Patrick Henry. In St. John's Chapel, he gave his famous give me liberty or give me death speech. This is really a remarkable speech, and I just want to read the end of the speech to you guys tonight. He gave the speech on March 23rd, 1775. Here's what he said. He said, Sir, we are not weak if we make a proper use of those means which the God of nature hath placed in our power. The millions of people armed in the holy cause of liberty and in such a country as that which we possess are invincible by any force which our enemy can send against us. Besides, sir, we shall not fight our battles alone. There is a just God who presides over the destinies of nations and who will raise up friends to fight our battles for us. The battle, sir, is not to the strong alone. It is to the vigilant, the active, the brave. The war has actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? He said, gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take. But as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Now, we, we've, heard this, we've heard this speech before. We know his give me liberty or give me death. What's interesting is when you look at this, there are actually, I just read to you 14 sentences. Now, wanting to know the, the thinking, the framework, where really they got their ideas from, it's interesting, in those 14 sentences I just read to you, I wonder how many Bible verses you recognized. Now, this is interesting. 14 sentences, how many Bible? See, it's, it's interesting because most people today would go, well, I, 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 didn't, I didn't hear him quote a Bible verse. What's amazing in this speech, he gave 11 Bible verses in 14 sentences. Now, the reason we don't recognize it today is because he didn't say, okay, open your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 22, we're going to read verse 15, because he didn't say open to Job or open to Ezekiel. We've forgotten, but see, what's amazing is when you look at all the references that he had directly from the Bible, the Bible was such a part of their daily life that you find it everywhere and everything they did. And it's amazing for us as believers today that we have a hard time identifying what for them was second nature. The Bible was so much a part of their life. It came out in their everyday speech. And we used to know this, but this is part of the thinking that shaped what they did. And in fact, you have people like Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin, if you go to the Constitutional Convention, and actually he gave his famous speech on June 28, 1787. We were about four, four and a half weeks into the convention. And there were 13 different colonies that sent 13 different delegations, and everybody had their own idea. New Jersey came with a New Jersey plan. There was a Virginia plan. There was a Vermont plan. Everybody had their own idea. And so when they all got together, nobody could really agree on what was going to be the best thing for our nation. They were so frustrated at the end of four weeks of seemingly accomplishing nothing that delegates began to leave. Alexander Hamilton took his group of men and said, we're done. We're going home. George Mason took his group and said, we're leaving. As men are frustrated and begin to leave, Benjamin Franklin says, guys, can I say something? Calls on George Washington, the president of the convention. As he calls on George Washington, this is where he gives his really famous speeches called the prayer. Here's what he said. 
in this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth, and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of Lights to illuminate our understanding? He said, in the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Our prayers were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. And have we now forgotten this powerful friend? Or do we imagine we no longer need his assistance? He said, I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs the affairs of men. If a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel, and we shall become a reproach and a byword down to future generations. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberation be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. Now, in all of that, there were 14 sentences. Again, how many Bible verses? This, this should be getting a little easier for us. We know there's probably a lot in this thing. In this, how many Bible verses? There were actually 13 different references he made to the Bible. Now, again, we, we, we might have recognized some of them. And I understand, especially people with gray hair that have been saved longer than me, you probably recognize these instantly. It took me a little research to find all these Bible verses. The reality is they spend so much time on the Word of God it was so secondary in their vocabulary that they're just saying things that are natural, but it came directly from the word of God. In fact, you can even see this in George Washington. George Washington, he said, may the children of the stock of Abraham. Oh, let me back up and give a little context to this. George Washington in, in, in 1789, when he gets elected president, um, in 1790, he begins his tour around the United States, going to all the different states, meeting people, greeting people. Well, there was a Jewish congregation that actually wrote him a letter in his travels. He got it. And they said, we are so grateful that God has put you as our leader. We're so excited. And they went on to talk about his presidency. Well, George Washington wrote them a letter back. And in this letter back, this is an excerpt from that letter. Here's what he said. He said, may the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants. While everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree, and there shall be none to make him afraid. May the father of all mercies scatter light and not darkness in our path, and make us all in our several vocations useful here, and in his own due time and way, everlastingly happy. Now, there were only two sentences. How many Bible verses? <laughs> do, two sentences, there were ten Bible verses. That's a pretty good average. Five a sentence. I don't think I could do that in my normal everyday vocabulary talk, but the reality is we look at these guys today and we don't get a perspective or, or have the perception that these are guys that knew the word of God. And largely the fault is ours because we don't identify the word of God when they speak it. It was so much a part of their culture that in their everyday vocabulary, they're using phrases from the word of God. Well, this is the thinking that shaped what they did. These are the verses that George Washington referenced. Things from Corinthians and Acts and Isaiah and Proverbs and Kings. He's all over the place, but it was so much part of who he was. It came out in his everyday vocabulary. And what he expressed. In fact, this is why when George Washington was president, 
and he gave us his farewell address. One of the things he said in his farewell address is that of all the habits and dispositions which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. They believe so much in the principles of the word of God. He said, if you want to know how to be prosperous, successful, happy, you make sure you keep religion and morality. You keep God in the middle of what you do. He went further and said, in vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars. Meaning, if you are anti-God being a part of everything we do, he said, you can't call yourself a patriot. He says, in vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism. The Bible, the word of God, the truths of God's kingdom were so important in their lives. George Washington said, you cannot remove those and call yourself a proud American. I'm, a, I'm an American patriot. I just want to get God out of what we do. You're not an American patriot. This is what he said. In fact, you have people like Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry, we know, was very outspoken about his faith. This is what he said. He said, the great pillars of all government are virtue, morality, and religion. This is the armor, my friend, and this alone that renders us invincible. Righteousness alone can exalt America as a nation. Reader, whoever thou art, remember this. And in thy sphere, practice virtue thyself and encourage it in others. Very plain. It's, that's Proverbs 14, 34. Righteousness exalts a nation. Very plain. These guys understood what made us who we were going to be. When we look at American exceptionalism, it's not hard to, to realize where he came from. John Adams, in fact, in fact, at the end of the revolution, was asked how do we accomplish it. He said the general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. See, they were readily acknowledging that God was a part and God was the responsibility behind what we were able to accomplish. Well, today, that's not what we hear at all. Today, here's an article that ran in the L.A. Times. America's unchristian beginnings, the founding fathers were deists who rejected the divinity of Jesus. That's what we're told today. Here's an article that ran in the East Coast. The authors of the Declaration were enemies of Christ. Here's actually one that was done by a college professor. The founding fathers were not Christians. And that's generally what we're taught today, is that these guys were atheists, they were agnostics, they were deists. But it's interesting because when you look at the 56 guys that gave us the Declaration, and we were to ask ourselves really who these guys were, and were they really atheists or agnostics or deists? And so we decide, okay, 56 guys, we want to know who they were and what they believed. All right, well, then who do we know? Most of us can find Jefferson, and most of us can find Franklin, at least if you were trained in public schools in the last 60 years. That's who we're taught. That's who we identify. It's amazing that for most people, they can't identify anybody more than Jefferson and Franklin. And it's interesting that we've been trained to, to find the two least religious of the founding fathers by their own mouth. When you look at the rest, if, if you just start on the front row over here, Richard Henry Lee, we've, we've never heard of Richard Henry Lee. You have people like George Clinton. We don't know about George Clinton. Sam Adams, he was considered the father of the American Revolution. He was in charge of the Sons of Liberty. He was considered the reason we had the American Revolution. Today, we have no idea really anything about Sam Adams. You have people like Charles Carroll. Just keep going across the front row. Robert Morris. You have people like Dr. Benjamin Rush, Elbridge Jerry. You have Robert Treat Payne. We can go all around the room, and for the most part, we've never heard of these guys. But today we're told, well, they're atheists, they're agnostics, they're deists. What's remarkable about these guys that we're told they're atheists, agnostics, and deists is 29 of these guys had Bible school or seminary degrees. They were trained in Bible school, trained in seminary, which is pretty impressive for a group of atheists. <laughs> but today we have no idea. Seminary trained degrees, we, we have no idea who these guys are, and so therefore we don't know what they believed. A great example is this guy over here, John Witherspoon. 
John Witherspoon was actually a gospel minister. As a gospel minister, they used to print his sermons. He had 12 published volumes, books of just his sermons. They were so popular they used to sell out. He would reprint more, 12 volumes. In fact, he also was on the state legislature of New Jersey. One of the things he did on the state legislature of New Jersey is he wanted to make sure everybody in his state had their own Bible. So he's actually responsible for two different editions of the Bible. This is one of his original editions of the Bible that he had printed for his state of New Jersey so that everyone in his state could have their own Bible. Now, we're talking about a signer of the Declaration who's printing Bibles so everyone in their state can have Bibles. This is remarkable. We had no idea a signer of the Declaration is doing something like this, but we've never heard of John Witherspoon, so why would we know he did that? John Witherspoon was very outspoken about his faith. He served on over 100 committees in, com or, excuse me, in Congress, one of the most outspoken founders when it came to Congress. And this is what he said about his faith. He said, I entreat you in the most earnest manner to believe in Jesus Christ, for there is no salvation in any other. If you are not reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, if you are not clothed with a spotless robe of his righteousness, you must forever perish. Now, I couldn't be wrong, but it sounds kind of evangelical to me. I, I don't know many atheists that give an altar call like that. But today, we have never heard of John Witherspoon, and we're told, no, the founding fathers were atheists, agnostics, deists. They were all like Jefferson. They were all like Franklin, but, but they weren't. We just don't know that today. You have people like Dr. Benjamin Rush. Dr. Benjamin Rush, he died actually in 1813. When he died, John Adams said he was one of the, the three most notable founding fathers. He said you had George Washington, you have Benjamin Franklin, and you have Dr. Benjamin Rush. Those are the three most notable founding fathers. Today, we've never heard of him, but he actually was considered the father of American medicine. He was the most famous doctor in American history, came up with medical cures over 200 years ago that we still use today. In fact, he started five universities. Three of them still exist today. He was professor of medicine at three of those universities at the same time, considered the father of public schools under the Constitution. He actually started the first education, academic education for women, the first academic education for African-Americans. He actually is the one that started the Abolition Society in America. This guy is amazing, and today we've never heard of him. He served on three different presidential administrations. He was director of the U.S. Mint. He was U.S. Treasurer. He was U.S. Secretary. We've never heard of this guy today. But if you go to church, and if you've ever been to Sunday school, you in large part have him to thank for it because he started the Sunday school movement in America. A founding father did that. Not only that, he helped found the very first Bible society in America. And actually, we have an original pamphlet from that Bible society. This was their eighth report. And he actually would write these reports. And one of the things he said is that there are two reasons he believed everyone in the United States should have a Bible. Everyone in America should have a Bible. He said the two reasons are, number one, if people would have a Bible and they would read the Bible for themselves, they would get saved. He said, number two, if everyone would have a Bible and they would read their Bible and, and really live according to the Bible, it would solve every social injustice in our world today. You'd have no more crime, oppression, slavery. Every problem would be solved if people would just read and live according to the word of God. Well, because he believed that, one of the things that he did, being a very smart man, he came up with the very first stereotyped printing press, a way that he could mass produce Bibles. In fact, this is the very first ever mass produced Bible in America done by that founding father because he wanted everybody in America to have their own copy of the Bible. And this is an amazing guy, and we've never heard of Dr. Benjamin Rush today. But one of the things they did in that era is they wrote everything down, kept very detailed journals, wrote all kinds of things. He has over 100 volumes of writings, and you can't go through a single volume of his writings without him talking about his faith. 
And he was very outspoken about his faith. This is what he said. He said, my only hope of salvation is in the infinite, transcendent love of God manifested to the world by the death of his son upon the cross. Nothing but his blood will wash away my sins. I rely exclusively upon it. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Now, again, I could be wrong, but it sounds kind of evangelical to me. But today we've never heard of Dr. Benjamin Rush. Another great example, Roger Sherman. Roger Sherman's another guy. He was one of only six founding fathers to sign both the, the Declaration and the Constitution. In fact, he was the only guy that signed the Articles of Confederation, Declaration, and the Constitution. Really remarkable what he did. He actually served in the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate, did a lot of pretty amazing things. But this is another guy that was very open and outspoken about his faith. Here's what he said. He said, God commands all men everywhere to repent. He also commands them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and has assured us that all who do repent and believe will be saved. God has promised to bestow eternal blessings on all those who are willing to accept him on the terms of the gospel, that is, in a way of free grace through the atonement. Now, you don't get a whole lot more clear than that. There's no way this guy could be considered an atheist, an agnostic, or a deist, but today we've never heard of Roger Sherman. Roger Sherman, though, he, he, was, he did some pretty cool things. In fact, we have a newspaper article from the Globe, and this is from August 15th, and it doesn't, it doesn't show on either screen. August 15th, 1837 is when this was from, and they were remembering Roger Sherman. Here's what they said. They said the volume which he consulted more than any other was the Bible. It was his custom at the commencement of every session of Congress to purchase a copy of the scriptures, to peruse it daily, and to present it to one of his children on his return. So what he did is every year when he went to Congress, he bought a brand new Bible. And while he was in Congress, he would read the whole Bible. He would go through, he would put his own little notes in it, and then he would take it home, and he would give it to one of his kids. So they would have their own version, their own Bible, came from dad, had his note, notes, his commentary in it. That's really cool. Well, it's even more impressive for Roger Sherman because he had 15 kids. This, this is a lot of time in Congress trying to get enough Bibles for your kids. But it says the book that he consulted more than any other was the Bible. See, back then, we knew who these guys were and we knew what they did. 1837, we knew exactly who Roger Sherman was. We knew where Roger Sherman spent his time and that was the Bible. Well, then you have people like Charles Carroll. Charles Carroll, he actually lived to be the longest surviving signer of the Declaration. He lived to be 95 years old. Now, 95 years old is old for us today, but during the American Revolution, the average lifespan was 35 years old. He lived to be 95. Now, just a little perspective. If the average lifespan is 35 years old, midlife crisis <laughs> happens in youth group. <laughs> he lived to be 95 years old. He's outliving his kids. He's outliving his grandkids. Well, one day, one of his grandkids write him a letter. And in this letter, they say, Grandpa Carroll, you've lived a long time, but, but you understand, one day you will die. And when you die, are you prepared to stand before God in judgment? That's a good question. Well, he wrote back a letter, and I have this original copy of the letter. And he wrote back this letter. And in this letter, and I'm going to start off right here. I put it on the screen where my arrow is. It starts off on the mercy. Here's what he said in response to, am I prepared to stand before God in judgment? He says, on the mercy of my Redeemer, I rely for salvation. And on his merits, not on the works I have done in obedience to his precepts. Now, I don't know if you recognize that, but that sounds a lot like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. By grace you've been saved through faith and not none of yourself, so no one can boast. 
This guy is quoting a Bible verse back to, am I prepared to stand before God in judgment? See, this, this doesn't sound like a group of people that were anti-God, but today we know so little about them, who they were and what they did, that we don't recognize the Christian influence that was in their life. In fact, today, well, before I get there, he lived to be 95 years old. He lived to be the last surviving signer of the Declaration. On July 4th, 1826, it was the 50th anniversary of that document being signed. He actually received a letter from New York, from the government of New York, said, you're the last guy to be alive. We have an original copy of the Declaration. The original copy didn't have all the signatures at the bottom, but this was done for all 13 states so they could see what they were being a part of. And New York said, will you please come to New York? Will you write an inscription on our Declaration? We want to put it on display at New York City Hall for everyone to come see this original signer, his, his inscription on it, and a really neat deal. So he rides all the way up to New York, puts an inscription on this Declaration. They put it on display at New York City Hall. Here's what he wrote on that inscription. I am grateful to Almighty God for the blessings which through Jesus Christ our Lord he has conferred on my beloved country. I'm so grateful for God because of Jesus for what he's done for America. What an incredible statement. These are people that really their faith was very evident. It's not hard to see their faith when you look at who they are and where they came from. The problem is today is we're told these guys were atheists, they were agnostics, and they were deists. In fact, there, there's a book that's in universities today. It's called The Godless Constitution. It was written by two professors from Cornell University. And these guys make the, make the, the leap and conclusion that we have a godless constitution. The reason it's a godless constitution is because the founding fathers were godless, and godless men do godless things. Now, that makes sense. But I would like to know where they got their information from that says they were all godless. The founding fathers were godless. Well, if you want to know where they got their information from, you can just go to the back of the book and, and you see this is where they have their sources, their footnotes. Here's a note on sources. This is where they say they get their information from. Here's what they said. We have dispensed with the usual scholarly apparatus of footnotes. <laughs> this is still taught in universities today. This is what our kids learn in school. No, they were atheists, agnostic, and deists. No, we don't have any proof, but we just want you to take our word for it. This is the reality of why we battle this, because we don't know the true history anymore, and we don't look back to see that these guys don't know what they're talking about. Although the reality is, when you look at the evidence, the evidence is very clear who we were, where we came from, what we believed, and really what even helped us be successful, which is the whole idea of what we open with. What was it that really shaped the thinking of the founding fathers? What was it that really influenced them to do what they did? Well, it's very evident their influence largely beyond anything else was the word of God. It was the principles of God's kingdom that shaped so much of the thinking. And so that's why when you look at what they established with our government, the government that has made our nation the most successful nation in the history of the world, when they established what they did, it was because of the principles they learned in the word of God. But the question we see really relevant in our culture and world today is, what do we do with government? Because clearly we have a lot of issues going on in our government. We, we see Christian heritage. We see where we came from. But, but what do we do? I love what Thomas Jefferson said. When you look at the principles of good government, Thomas Jefferson is a pretty good place to go. In fact, in, in Thomas Jefferson's first inaugural address, he dealt very specifically with the issue of government, with where we are, with what's going on. And with the issue of government, I want to read just a little excerpt from, from his first inaugural address. And here's what he said about government. He said, after acknowledging and enduring an overruling providence, what more is necessary to make us a happy and prosperous people? He said, still one thing more. 
a wise and frugal government which shall restrain men from injuring one another, which shall leave them otherwise free to regulate their own pursuits of industry and improvement, and shall not take from the mouth of labor the bread it has earned. This is the sum of good government. Now, in that, he actually said five different things and concluded with this is the sum of good government. This is what makes a government successful. And so I want to go back. If he says this is what is good government, he was there at the beginning. He helped do everything that we did as a nation. He probably would know what made it successful. And this is what he said. He said when you look at the sum of good government, the first thing he said is you have to acknowledge and adore God. Now, by the way, this is exactly where we came from as a nation because when you look at the Declaration, the Declaration in 45 words gives our philosophy of government. And you know these words. It's we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. Now, we see the philosophy of, of American government in those 45 words. The first thing is there is a divine creator, that we believe all men are created. There is a God, and specifically, that the divine creator or God gives us inalienable guaranteed rights. And the third thing we saw is that government exists to secure or to protect our God-given rights. Now, this is the premise of where our nation started, of what we believed, is we believe there was a God who has given us rights and government exists to protect those rights. Now, the reason Thomas Jefferson said we have to first acknowledge God, if you don't acknowledge that we came from God, then you don't believe government is here to protect our God-given rights. Because if we didn't come from God, God didn't give you rights. Therefore, government doesn't have to protect the rights that God has given us, the freedoms that God has given us. That's why Jefferson said you have to first acknowledge there is a God. And this, by the way, is where we see the, the idea of limited government. Limited government, the, the phrase we use today is kind of misunderstood by some people because limited government has nothing to do with the size of government in a numerical sense of how many people are involved in government. Limited government really has to do with the jurisdiction or the reach of government. What government has a say in and doesn't have a say in, if you understand, according to what we believed in the Declaration, that government is here to protect the rights that God has given us, then government doesn't get to decide what rights we can or can't have. God's already told us what rights we have. Your only job is to protect what God has given us. But if you don't believe there's a God, then rights come from government. And so government can regulate and government can restrict and government can overreach and there's not a limited government. And this is the principle you see in secular governments. In secular governments, there's never a limited government. This is where you see in secular governments, you have your communism and socialism. Government has to come in and control and take care of things because that's government's job. Well, in America, we always believed it was different. We believe that God has already spoken. God has given us rights. Government's job is just to protect what God has given us. And this is the whole premise why we have to acknowledge there is a God because otherwise we're not going to review anything else correctly if there's not a God. Well, George Washington, he also, in, in, in one of his pro presidential proclamations, one of the things he said in his proclamation is, it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and humbly to implore his protection and favor. Now, as simple as that was, I want to point out with some emphasis exactly what he said, because he said, it is the duty. That means it's a responsibility. There's an obligation. An obligation to do what? Well, he said the first thing was to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God. It is your responsibility to acknowledge that there is a God. He went further and said, and to obey his will. So you have to say there is a God. God does have a will. I want to obey God's will. He said to be grateful 
for his benefits. So there's a God. We obey his will. We are grateful for his benefits. And then he said to humbly implore his protection and favor. Now, this is remarkable what he said. It is the duty to do. But you know what's interesting is, is he wasn't speaking specifically to an individual. He said it is the duty of all nations. That's interesting. Because now it's not the duty of, of the church. It's not the duty of the pastor or the duty of, of people that believe God. It is the duty of a nation to do this. And this is the view where our nation found it. We believed as a nation we should acknowledge God, that we should obey what God has commanded, that we should be grateful for what God has given us, that we should implore his protection. We should pray and ask God for his protection and favor. It was very clear. And this is why when Thomas Jefferson said the first thing that makes good government you have to acknowledge and adore God. If you don't have the right perspective of God, nothing else you do is going to be correct. You have to first have the right perspective of God. Well, then he said the second thing that makes good government. He says, exercise frugality. Now, this is rather significant because of where we are in our culture today. Thomas Jefferson said, I place economy, which is frugality. I place economy among the first and most important of Republican virtues. And public debt as the greatest of dangers to be feared. He said the worst thing you can do is take on debt. Now, by the way, in, our, in our, the history of our nation, there have been several times when we took on debt. And, and, and sometimes you are in a place, especially during wars, where that's that just kind of what happened. But you'll notice, although it went up in times of war, as soon as the war was over, we worked pretty hard to pay off that debt as quickly as we could because we understood debt was a bad thing. When you look at where we are today, it's rather shocking and even a little terrifying to consider how much debt that we are taking on and not just how much that we have right now but how much that we have promised and committed to our future it's remarkable how much debt we've piled on and the reason that should really be a problem beyond the, the basic math aspects is because of what we see in proverbs 22 7 it says the borrower is servant to the lender we are borrowing more and more and more money to try to do things because we don't want to exercise a little frugality. And the reality is we are making ourselves a slave to whoever we are borrowing from. Well, the principle that you see in Proverbs 22, 7 is that debt is not where you want to be. Debt is a bad thing. And this is what Thomas Jefferson said. He said, to preserve the independence of the people, we must not let our rulers load us with perpetual debt. He said, we must make our choice between frugality and liberty or excessive spending and servitude. It's amazing the correlation, the parallel he makes. He says, you can live frugally and have freedom, or you can spend money you don't have and be a slave the rest of your life. It's amazing where we find ourselves today. He said, if the debt should be swelled to a formidable size, its entire discharge will be despaired of, and we shall be committed to a career of debt, corruption, and rottenness. It's a pretty powerful statement, but that's a very powerful and very accurate perspective when you start loading on debt. He said the discharge of the debt, therefore, is vital to the destinies of our government. Meaning if we're going to be successful in our future, we're going to have to throw off some of this debt. And that's something that, that should be significant and a concern for us as we look to our future. George Washington, obviously leader of our nation, first president, commander in chief, incredible military leader. He has a lot of wisdom and he's really the one that helped establish our nation, make it successful. Here's what he said. He said, avoid occasions of expense. Now, we could stop there because that's, that's pretty simple. But he went on. He said, the maxim of buying nothing 
But what we have money in our pockets to pay for lays the broadest foundations for happiness. He said, if you, if you don't have money to do it, novel concept, don't do it. He said, practically speaking, you want to enjoy a happy life? Don't spend money you don't have. Because debt is not a happy life. Very simply, he said, let's just spend the money we have, and if you don't have it, don't spend it. Benjamin Franklin was known for his very, his very witty, his very pithy statements, very smart guy. Benjamin Franklin said, when you incline to have new clothes, look first well over the old ones and see if you cannot shift with them another year, either by scouring, mending, or even patching if necessary. He said, remember, a patch on your coat and money in your pocket is better and more credible than a writ on your back and no money to take it off. Now, let's, let's, let's be practical. We, as hardworking Americans, understand this, this philosophy. If you are in a financial tough time, you learn to make things work a little bit longer. You don't get the new pair of shoes. You don't get your kids a new outfit. You don't get the new car. We learn to make things work. In fact, in my family, we have never retired a car under 300,000 miles. You run it until it doesn't run. Then you fix it, run it some more, and the process continues. We don't retire vehicles. We salvage, we use. But, you know, I have a friend who works for the government. And uh, my, my truck, I have an F-150, and it's, it's getting close to 200,000 miles, and I'm expecting a lot more years out of it still. I have a buddy who was talking about the fact that, you know, his government car just, it's getting a little beat up, and it's about time for him to get a new government car. Now, coming from the perspective that you run them till they don't run, I'm thinking, well, he must have a lot of miles in this thing. And I said, so it's time to get a new car. I said, well, well how many miles do you have? He says, man, I have almost 50,000 miles, so it's time to get a new one. But see, this is, this is the skewed mentality that we see in government that, that we are spending money. Instead of recognizing we are in a financial crisis situation, we should cut back where we can. We're still spending money we don't have. And I love what Franklin said, just real smart. He said, you should put a patch on that hole and just keep it a little bit longer. Just hang on to it because we need to save money where we can. This is why Jefferson said, if you want to know what makes good government, they exercise frugality. They don't spend money they don't have to spend when they don't have the money to spend. Well, he said the third thing is it restrains the infliction of injury. Now, one of the things that we see in the Bible, actually, when you look at 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10, it says, we know that the law is good if it is used as it should be used. Meaning the law is like a farm tool. If you use it the right way, it works very well. And this is what Paul said about the law. He said, it must be remembered, of course, that laws are made not for good people, but for lawbreakers and criminals. Now, what a novel concept, that the good people shouldn't fear the law. Good people shouldn't fear government. It should be the bad guys, the people breaking the law. You know what's amazing? I get terrified when I see a police officer pull out, and I'm a good guy. I don't do any... But we have become terrified of government and their overreach and what they do. And, and this is what Paul said. The, the laws are supposed to be a terror to the bad guys. He said the laws are for the murderers, for the immoral, for the sexual perverts, the prostitutes, for homosexuals, for slave traders, for kidnappers, for perjurers, or for those who do anything else contrary to sound teaching. The law should be a terror to the bad guy, not a terror to the good guy. But, you know, I don't know many criminals that are scared of the IRS. I know a lot of good people that are terrified of the IRS. I'm always worried about how I fill out my taxes. What's going to happen? We have lost the concept of the point of government that it is to 
protect the good and punish the bad. We've lost that concept. But, you know, one of the things that's interesting, when you look at our U.S. federal code, we are responsible for the law, whether we really know all the law or not. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. In fact, I live up in Weatherford. When I was driving down this afternoon, the, the speed limit changed several times, and there was a couple times I wasn't really sure, and I was being safe. I wanted to go a little slow and not speed because I, I don't want to get pulled over and have to pay a ticket. That's ridiculous. But I knew if I was speeding and a police officer pulls me over and I'm going 70 in a 45 or 55, and he says, son, you're going too fast, and I say, sorry, he's not going to go, well, that's okay. No, I get a ticket because ignorance of the law is no excuse. Well, it's the same thing with every law we have in our nation. You have to know the laws of the land where you live. So if you want to know the laws of our nation, let's say that you decide to read our laws. If you read 700 pages per week, it would only take you 25,000 years to read all the laws. Now, we have laws to regulate everything. But we have ceased to punish the bad and reward the good. And now the laws are really a, a pain to the good guy. We've lost perspective. And actually, we have a friend. Her name is Esther Armstrong. She's this really sweet old lady in her 90s. And she goes to jails and, and prisons. And she'll talk to the inmates and goes and loves on them. She witnesses to them. And she was talking to a jailhouse attorney. Now, a jailhouse attorney is someone that's been in jail so long They've actually earned a law degree in prison. And, and then they begin to sue government um, while they're in prison. It's really ridiculous. But she's talking to a jailhouse uh, attorney, and he comes up to, they call her Mama Esther. And he comes up and says, Mama Esther, do you know there are over 10,000 laws that will put you in jail? She looked back at him and said, do you know there are 10 that would keep you out of jail? <laughs> Brilliant. See, God didn't need 700 pages for 25,000 years to rule and regulate. Government has lost the concept that it's very, very simple of punishing the bad, rewarding the good. And now we've lost the concept of, of what government is supposed to do. But Jefferson said a, a, a good government should restrain the infliction of injury from people doing right. The fourth thing he said makes good government is encourage entrepreneurship and free enterprise. Now, this is really significant. Benjamin Franklin talked a lot about this. In fact, Benjamin Franklin said a free market is the means under God of establishing the freedom of our country entire and handing it down complete to, po excuse me, complete to posterity. The reason, by the way, he says under God is because when we first came to America, actually when the pilgrims first came to America, when you look at this under God concept, they're the ones that came up with the free market system. But the reason they came up with the free market system is because when we first got to Jamestown, when we first got to Plymouth, we didn't start with a free market economic system. We started with the common storehouse system, that we're all just a big family. We're going to share together. Well, the problem was it was so unproductive, they weren't going to survive as a colony. So the two governors of the colony, they turned to the Bible, and they find verses like 1 Timothy 5.8, which says, if a man will not provide for his own family, he's worse than a non-believer. And they said, wait a second, have someone provide for their own family? That's an interesting concept. We were going to have somebody provide for everybody else's family. And then they found verses like 2 Thessalonians 3.10, which says, if a man will not work, he shouldn't eat. And they said, you know, we, we've been rewarding people whether they worked or not. Maybe we should change the way we do things. And because of what they found in the Bible, they developed the free enterprise system, which says we are each individually responsible. And if you can, as an individual, take and be profitable, then you get rewarded for what you did. And that's where we got the free enterprise system. And that's why Jefferson said it was from God. Now, by the way, those are two verses from the Bible. It's remarkable 
how much Jesus actually talked about money. In fact, Jesus talked about money more than any other topic that he did in his parables. And today, most people feel like that the Bible really doesn't have a lot to say about money and work and, and things that we do. It's amazing how much we've forgotten. Because you can look at things like Matthew 20. Jesus taught a parable that labor gets rewarded. In Matthew 25, he taught a parable that taught that skill. You have a skill set, and you can use a skill set, and based on your skill set, you can be rewarded. Well, in Luke 19, Luke 19, Jesus taught the parable of the minus, and he taught this principle that profit gets rewarded. And it's amazing how messed up we've gotten in our society, in our world today, because in this parable, you remember Jesus, the, the master called all the servants to him. He gave each servant a mina, and he sent them out. He said, I'm leaving. He came back after a period of time, called all the servants to him. So he said, all right, what did you do? And the first servant says, Lord, I, I took it and I made 10. The master says, well done, good and faithful. Second servant says, master, I made five. He says, well done, good and faithful. Third servant comes up and says, master, I knew you were hard and, and, and you reap where you haven't scattered and you gather where you, you haven't sown. And I was scared, so I just took it and, and I buried it. But here, I brought it back to you. Remember what the master said? You wicked, lazy, unprofitable servant. If you knew I was hard, you should have at least invested it because then I would have gotten interest because you were a terrible steward. The master said, take from him who was not productive and give it to the one who has 10. And all the servants said, but master, he already has 10. And Jesus said, yes, but to everyone who has, more will be given. But to him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. The principle was, if you are productive, you get rewarded. If you are lazy and unproductive, you don't get rewarded. That's the exact opposite of what we try to do in America today. If you make too much money, we're going to have to take some from you. And if you don't do anything and you just stay at home and you're lazy, we're going to reward that. And we're going to take from this guy who makes too much and we're going to give some to you. We have so misunderstood the concept of what Jesus taught that actually works and is successful that you reward productivity. But that's what Jefferson said when he said that the free market is the means under God because that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches individual responsibility gets rewarded. That's the free market system. Well, you have Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson said that the pillars of our prosperity are the most thriving when left most free to individual enterprise. He said, if you want to really be productive, you want to really be prosperous, give people a lot of freedom. Let people make their own decisions. Now, the reality is you can see that very well when you look at the peninsula of Korea. After the Korean War, they split in North and South Korea. They have the exact same land, the exact same culture, the exact same heritage, the exact same natural resources. The only difference is in North Korea, it's a command economy. The government runs it. In South Korea, it's a free market system. The people run it. Well, how can you tell which one's more productive? Well, they take satellite imaging at night, and through satellite imaging, you can see where there's electricity. So remember, North Korea, the government runs. South Korea, the people run. I wonder where there's more electricity. It's not even a contest, although I will say there is one little dot in North Korea, so they have something going on, but I think it's where the dictator lives, so I don't know if it counts. <laughs> South Korea, so productive because the people have individual responsibility. They get to make their own choices, their own decisions. It's not even a contest. He said there's the most prosperity when people have the most freedom to make the choices. Now, what's interesting is when you look at all the people that needed the bailouts, you look at the bank, the insurance agencies, the mortgage companies, you look at the car companies, all the people that needed the bailouts from government, you know what's interesting is those were the companies that were the most heavily regulated by government. Where government was the most involved, we had the most failure. Where people had the most freedom, we are more productive. And that was the principle that Jefferson talked about. 
But this, again, goes back to the philosophy that's taught in Scripture of individual responsibility, that when people have freedom, we are more productive. But when you are individually responsible, you also live and do things differently. It's more productive. And that's what we saw. So Jefferson said the fourth thing is you encourage, government should encourage entrepreneurship and free enterprise, individual responsibility. The fifth and last thing he said is what makes good government. He said it protects the property and earnings of citizens. Now, James Madison, James Madison was a signer of the Constitution. He helped frame the Bill of Rights. He's the guy that helped, he co-authored the Federalist Papers. He was a president of the United States. James Madison said government is instituted to protect private property. Now, remember, one of the things from the Declaration is government is here to protect our God-given rights. Well, private property is a God-given right because when you look at, at the Ten Commandments, you actually will find that there are two specific commandments that deal exclusively with private property. Thou shalt not steal and thou shalt not covet. You don't even covet what somebody else's. God protects private property. That's what we believe. Government is here to protect our God-given rights. One of those rights is private property. He said it is not a just government nor is property secure under it where arbitrary restrictions denied a part of its citizens that free use of their faculties. Meaning, if government can come in and tell you what you can and can't do with your own property, it's not really your property. They view it as almost a lease. My wife and I just bought a house, and we have paid off the house. We're really excited. We paid it down in cash. Really great thing for us. But you know, if, if we don't pay the land tax, government comes and takes it away from us in one year? I thought I bought it. I thought I owned something. No, government says, no, you're just leasing it. You keep paying me for it, or I'm going to take it back. See, we've lost the concept of private property, and this is what he talked about, where someone comes and tells you what you can and can't do on your property, which I don't even want to get into the restrictions because we had to do a lot of work on the house, and it was ridiculous. My fence fell down, wooden fence. I couldn't even put up my own picket fence and screw it back into the post without a, a building permit because they said if you have a screw gun or a, 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 a driver, nails, anything outside the house, it's considered a building project. Couldn't even put up my own fence. It was ridiculous. Government, get out of my way. Or where the property which a man has in his personal safety and personal liberty is violated by arbitrary seizures of one class of citizens for the service of the rest. You know, one of the interesting things that, that we've been a part of as wall builders is, is we work with a lot, of, uh, a lot of religious liberties cases. And there was a, actually a county down by Houston. And they had about 30 churches inside the, this, this county city limits. And inside these, these 30 churches, actually the city said, you know, churches don't pay taxes. And, and we want... We want to make some money, and so we need, we need institutions that pay taxes. So we want to kick all the churches out of the city limits, and we're only going to let people stay here that pay taxes. Now, that's, that's violating someone's private property. To use it. We, we want to build, they said we want to build a strip mall so we can make a lot of money. We can tax, and we can get something back, as if churches aren't profitable for the community, as if churches are the ones that are making the police officers have to stay out and work later and longer hours, and, and churches are the ones that are filling up the jails, We've so lost perspective, but James Madison said government's really supposed to protect private property, and there's no way government should be able to kick a church out or tell a church what they have to do, how they have to do it. We've lost that perspective. Thomas Jefferson said, to take from one because it is thought that his own productivity has acquired too much in order to give it to others who have not exercised equal industry and skill is to violate arbitrarily the first principle of association. The guarantee to everyone of a free exercise of his hard work and the profits acquired by it. Now, one of the things the founding fathers believed is that your money was also your private property. You had earned it. You had taken care of it. You had possession of it. It was your money. 
And so for government to say, because you have made too much, we're going to take some away from you, we're going to penalize you because you've been too productive, that wasn't the role of government. You have people like Benjamin Franklin, again, really smart guy. Benjamin Franklin said, there cannot be a stronger natural right than that of a man's making the best profit he can. Now, us making the best profit, this is what Jefferson said, this is the sum of good government. He said, number one, we have to have people that respect God. Because if, if we don't acknowledge we came from God, God-given rights, we misunderstand what government's job is to protect our God-given rights. Number two, he says, we need a government that exercises frugality. We don't need more debt in our nation. We need to pay our debt off. That's an important concept. He said, we need government that punishes criminals. That we, we shouldn't be scared of government. The bad guys should be scared of government. That's the sum of good government. He says, number four, encourage free enterprise. That we're not trying to keep people from entering the market. We're not trying to keep people, restrict people, to make it hard for them to enter the market. No. We want to encourage people to take their God-given giftings and abilities and be productive because that actually helps us as a nation in what we do. And the last thing he said is the sum of good government is that government should protect citizens' property and income. And this is, is something that's very significant because clearly where we are in our nation today, this is a forgotten concept that Thomas Jefferson said, this is what makes us... This is what makes us successful. This is good government. This is what will make us as a nation really, really exceptional was the concept. Well, these are the guys that gave us American exceptionalism. It was the principles of the word of God. Every single one of those principles directly from scripture. This is what makes us successful as a people, as a nation, in the home, in the family. This is the principle. But when you look at these things, that's the principles of good government. And that's also the principles that we would say of limited government. And this is our challenge as believers. We live in a day and time where our nation has a lot of religious liberties issues, a lot of things under attack, our debt. We have so many issues that we have to work on, but it's time for us to get back involved. It's amazing that when you look at elections, do you know that, that, that not even half of the nation that's eligible to vote votes? And it's even worse for Christians because less than 25% of Christians even vote in an election. If... If believers are the ones who, who have been given the keys to success from the word of God, we're the ones that should be more active than anybody else because we know what makes something successful. It's time for us to get stirred back up and to get involved in the process. We are not beyond hope. There is, there is so much success that's already taking place, but in order for us to continue to gain ground and get what we need, we have to get involved and we have to do our part. And I want to close with this concept of American exceptionalism. We have been the most successful nation in the history of the world. But it's up to us if we're going to stay that way. It is up to us. We have the answer. We know what it takes, but we have to get involved in the process. We have to let our voice be heard, and we have to encourage our friends. We need to get back in this. We need to take back this nation. We need to get back to what made us successful. We need to put God back in the middle of what we do and understand the role of government in that context. Our founding fathers that made us an exceptional nation, the reason they made us exceptional nation is because they found it on the principles of the word of God. Those principles are the same principles that if we will get back to today, we can once again be an exceptional nation. Now, we do have a resource table out there. We have all kinds of material and information we've done at Wall Builders to really look at the founding fathers, who they were, what they believed, what they were a part of. If you guys are interested in some more history, if you want to know some more what they did, we have lots of resources. You also can go to our website, and we have lots of information on our website for you. But I want to encourage us. It's time for us as Americans to stand up to get back involved in this process. Thank you guys for your time tonight.
Thank you. Tim, thank you so much. Uh, very, very, very inspiring. Um, again, I, I just want to thank all of you all for coming. How, how many of you are not from Generations? Awesome. We are so happy you're here. And Pastor will thank me for this. If you don't have a church home, I'm just saying come here. But we will welcome you with open arms. If you're looking, don't leave your church to come here. No, don't do that. But a church that's reaching out to the community and loving people, this is 